Good morning. It's good to be back with you here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. I want to thank Pastor Dave for filling in for me last week as my wife and I were able to get away and go uh, along with Ted and Tracy, actually, to celebrate our mutual 20th anniversaries, our wedding anniversaries. We were able to do that. We went out to San Diego and uh, got to spend a little time out there, and I am truly grateful for that opportunity. Uh, we were out there. There may have been a ball game involved in that trip somewhere along the way, uh, but uh, that, that was something that just kind of came up. That was not planned. We had just planned to already go out there and spend some time away, and, and so it was good, but it is good to be back here uh, with you fine folks here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church, and we are so excited to be back among you. And I suppose since it's the first Sunday of the new year, it's appropriate to say Happy New Year, and it's appropriate to say that to one another and to also convey the fact that uh, my prayer has been that we as a church family will continue to, to experience spiritual growth and that uh, our lives will continue to mature as we study God's Word together, as we, as we praise Him together, as we've already been involved with that process this morning, but as we just continue as a family to grow in our, in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray that that will be what we engage in this year. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, turn back with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9. It's been a little while since I've been able to tell you to do that. Uh, for many of you, you know we've been on a journey through our study through the Gospel of Mark. We began last January looking at Mark chapter 1 verse 1. And we made it all the way through the end of November through Mark chapter 9 verse 41. And so we are just on a speed train. I know many of you just, just can't believe how fast we're traveling through this book. Uh, but we took a little time off for Christmas, and, and uh, then Dave filled in for me last week. And so this morning, we're going to be picking back up with verse 42 of Mark chapter 9, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter, verse 50. And by the way, in case you missed any of those sermons, or you missed any of the ones at Christmas, or any of the other series that we have engaged in, I think they're all there on our church website. You're welcome to go. You can download the sermons there. You can watch them online as well. So just a little plug for our church website. Now, just to sort of set the context for Mark chapter 9. If you remember, there's been some pretty radical stuff taking place in Mark 9. The chapter began with Jesus taking Peter, James, and John with him up on top of a mountain where he was transfigured before them. And then following that, after coming back down from the mountain, there was a young boy who was possessed with a demon that the other disciples had not been able to exorcise. And so Jesus came in and was able to deliver that young boy of the demon that had possessed him. And then following that, Jesus reminds his disciples that he would go and he would be crucified, that he would be buried, but that he would rise again. And then immediately on the heels of that, there's this, this, this sort of this, this thing going on with the disciples. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. And they're not only arguing about that, but they're concerned about other people that are out there doing things in the name of Jesus. And Jesus has to take his disciples to task about some of the things that they are arguing about and, and concerned about among themselves. And in doing that, he, he sets up a time of being able to teach them. And it is right in the middle of that time of instruction that we come to understand that's where we are this morning in our text beginning in verse 42. Now, it's, it's important to understand that when, when Jesus is, is teaching his disciples here in these final verses of chapter 9, what he's telling them is to be a disciple of his is serious business. There's a serious nature to being a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, I have entitled this morning's sermon, Christianity is Serious Business. Now, when we say something is serious business, sometimes 
that, that is taken sort of sarcastically or even, even humorously. But what I want you to know this morning is that what we're about to read, and when we fully get the import of what Jesus says here, there is nothing sarcastic and there is nothing humorous about what he says to us. In fact, the warnings that Jesus issues in these verses are among the most serious and the most grave warnings that he ever gives. And he's issuing them to his disciples. He's issuing these warnings to those who are actively following him. And that fact in and of itself ought to cause us as Christians to sit up straight in our seats and take note of what he says. Because if he's talking to his disciples, by necessity, he's speaking to you and to me today as well. So that makes us even more intent on trying to understand what he's saying to us. So with that as an introduction, let's get right to the text. Verse 42, Mark chapter 9, these are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who says to us, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for challenging us with it. We recognize that on this very first Sunday of 2018, we've just read some very difficult words. But Father, we also recognize that your word is truth. And so we who are your followers, we desire for your word to transform us and to change us and to conform us in the image of your son, Jesus. We desire that our lives would, would be impacted by the truth of your word so that we leave this place different from the way that we came in. I pray that there will be conviction of your Holy Spirit that will fall upon us today. That we would not push against it. That we would not, we would not fight against the work of your Spirit in our hearts, but rather we would, we would rejoice in the fact that through your conviction, you are bringing us to a place of telling us how much you love us. That you're not willing to allow us to stay where we are. So Lord, I pray that as a result of the time we spend in your Word today, that the trajectory of our lives in this coming year will be altered but will be altered in a positive and productive way that we might be the believers and the followers of Christ that you desire for us to be. This is my prayer. I pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. 
I like the way that John MacArthur describes this passage that I just read for you. He calls it a very unique portion of Scripture. He says it's full of graphic terminology and dramatic acts, severe warnings, and rather violent threats. He goes on to say this. He says that it's really a passage about radical discipleship and that the language bears testimony to that. It is a passage that calls for radical behaviors and it shows just how radical it is to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. I really could not agree with what John MacArthur says anymore. He likes the term radical. However, I like better the term serious. And as my comments in the introduction made clear, and as my sermon title states, I believe that Christianity is serious business. And the serious nature of what it means to, to be a Christian is highlighted in four specific ways in this text. And I want us to walk our way through it this morning to see what it is that Christ would have us to, to understand. The first is the first point on your outline that I've given you, and it comes from verse 42 this morning. And the first point that I want you to note is this. There is the serious business of causing others to stumble. The serious business of causing others to to stumble. Let me read verse 42 for you again. It says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. There are two key words or concepts in this verse that I think help us to understand exactly what Jesus is saying to us. The first is we have to ask, who is Jesus referring to when he uses the term my cross there, or, or it's this the word that's translated in all the major translations as little ones? Who is Jesus referring to when he uses that term? Well, many look back up to verses 36 and 37 of chapter 9, where Jesus is holding a little baby, a little child in his arm, and he's talking about children. And therefore, they, they infer from that that Jesus is referring to children in this verse when he uses the term my cross. But I believe to limit the interpretation of my cross or little ones to only be talking about children is actually too great of a limitation. It certainly can, and I believe it should, Help us to understand that he's talking about children, but, but I don't believe it's limited to children alone. Consider this. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to the ones who have been following him for the better part of three years by this point. He's talking to men who have been allowed to be on the inside, to men who've been able to, to witness the miracles that he's performed. He's talking to men who have heard him teach. He, he's talking to men who have watched him change the lives of other people. And therefore, since Jesus is talking to this select group of people who have, who have been given the advancement of, of further spiritual maturity, then the term my cross or the term little ones should be understand, understood to be referring to those who would believe in Christ but who had yet not reached their same level of maturity. In his commentary on this passage, R.C. Sproul proposes that the term little ones refers to ordinary believers who are not sophisticated in their learning but seek to be faithful and obedient to Jesus with childlike faith. Now, in some respects, every one of us in this room could probably say, well, that's me. I, I, I desire to be faithful and obedient to Christ with childlike faith. All of us would probably say that about ourselves. I mean, none of us have reached our fullest possible point of spiritual maturity. Hopefully, we're all still growing 
and maturing in Christ. But we also know that there are those who come to faith in Christ who are just simply eager to follow Him. They are simply eager to, to, to do what they are taught and they're simply eager to follow the examples that are set in front of them because they want to just be a follower of Christ. They often don't, don't challenge things. They don't question things as much as maybe others do. And my point is simply that when Jesus talks about little ones in this verse, I believe he is referring to those who are not necessarily little in their stature, but also those who are little in their spiritual maturity. Now, Having identified them, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples how they are not to be guilty of causing one of these little ones who are around them to stumble. And here's where we come to the next concept or the next word that's important for us to understand if we're truly going to get to the heart of the warning that Jesus gives to us in this verse. The Greek word that is translated to stumble is the word skandalizo. It's the word, Greek word we get our English word scandal from or to scandalize. It's a word that the ESV translates as to sin, but it literally means to trip up. To scandalizo means to trip over something. It means to fall down. And what Jesus is saying, that it is dangerous for a Christian to do something that would cause the less spiritually mature little ones around them to stumble, to trip up, to make a downward spiral or to fall down because of something that they had done. Now, if we consider that, we need to consider, so how does this verse apply? How do we apply this verse? Well, it certainly applies to folks like me. Let me first of all say, if uh, pastors and teachers of the Word of God, this verse hits us directly between the eyes. And here's why. We are given a great responsibility of teaching and instructing believers in the faith. I know very clearly that 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul is speaking to Timothy there, is a direct reflection upon the role that he has called me to fulfill as a pastor. He tells Timothy there, he says, you are to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For me and for others who bear that same responsibility that I do in preaching the gospel and teaching the scriptures, well, for us to take and to twist God's word and to contort it, to make it sound and to say something that we want it to say as opposed to what it actually says and to thereby in the process of that to lead someone who is, who is less spiritually mature than I am away from the gospel and away from God. Well, Jesus says right here in very clear words to me, that is a grave danger if you choose to invest and to engage in that activity. But I want you to know this verse doesn't just apply to me as a pastor of this church. It actually applies to every one of us in this room. Even, even though you may not be a preacher and you may not be a teacher, I want you to know this verse applies to you if you are a follower of Christ and a Christian who proclaims to be a follower of Christ. I believe it applies because each and every one of us have a sphere of influence. We have, a, we have people over whom we have influence and that we, people follow us. Every person in this room has influence over somebody, whether that's primarily your family or maybe it's just a small circle of friends. Regardless of the size of that circle, all of you have influence. And that influence is exerted in the things that you say. It's exerted in the, in the things that you teach. But it's also exerted in the example 
that you sit. It's exerted in your actions, in the way that you spend your time. It's exerted on the, uh, in the ways that, that the, the way that you spend your money. It's exerted in the ways that, that your hobbies and, and the things that you enjoy engaging in. There are those who will understand that and it will influence the way that they also respond. And it's here that you and I need to be have, to have recognition that when Jesus says this, he's speaking to us. I like the way that Kent Hughes has, has written what he has done. He talks about how, how careful you and I must be as believers in recognizing that there are those that are following our examples. He says, how many little ones have been turned off by an unforgiving spirit or by a dishonest business transaction of a church member or by the worthless, crude street language that sometimes falls from a believer's mouth or by the sarcasm of a malignant gossip? He answers his own question. He says, thousands. And then he says this, some have never recovered. Brothers and sisters, every single person in this room will have those who pace themselves based upon the steps that you and I take. And because that's true, this verse applies to every one of us, regardless of whether or not we're preachers or teachers. And you may say, well, I didn't ask to be a role model Here's the point. If you have by faith received the grace of Jesus Christ and if you have repented of your sins and made him Lord of your life, the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required and you will be an influence. You may not have asked for it, but you are responsible for it. And Here's the thing. By our examples, we understand that Jesus says that it is a very sober and serious warning that we must not be guilty of causing the little ones that he has placed within our sphere of influence to stumble. Now, how does he impress upon us just how serious it is? Well, in fact, he tells us, he tells us that it'd be better if we had a millstone, which is a very, very heavy millstone was, was something that was moved by, by an animal of burden because it was so heavy a human couldn't move it and it would be rolled across the wheat and when it would roll across the wheat it would, it would cause that to pulverize into flour and so he says it's better the, the, the hyperbole here it's better if you had that attached to your neck something so heavy as that and then you'd be tossed into the sea which obviously means that you would go down and you would drown and, and what makes that even worse is that for the Jew, the idea, the concept of the sea was the, was the place of chaos. It was a place of terror. And so you were not only just dying, you were dying in a place of utter terror for a Jew to be drowned in the sea. And so Jesus is saying it would be better for you for that to happen to you than what? Well, he doesn't say. It's interesting that the whole point is that Jesus doesn't fill in the blank. That would be better than what? And it's by the fact that he doesn't tell us what it's better than that actually makes the point even more concrete. Because if the worst death that you can possibly imagine is better than what's in store if you cause one of the little ones to stumble, then you know just how bad that is. And it's through that communication that Jesus says, this is serious business. Christianity is serious business and causing little ones to stumble is a very serious issue to Christ. But our Lord's warning continues and it doesn't get any easier. The second point on your outline this morning and the second place that we go to is this. This is serious business of fighting personal sin. 
the serious business of fighting personal sin. We get this from verses 43 through 48. And as I was reading through there, I know some of you were probably going, well, I didn't, he's reading something and I didn't see it in my Bible. Depending on the version that you're reading this morning, you might not have had verse 44 and verse 46. And the reason that that is the case is because the, the New King James and the King James are based upon manuscripts that came a little later. The earliest manuscripts that we have available to us do not have those, wor those, those words that are included in verse 43 and 45 there. But they are the exact same words that you'll find in verse 48. And 48 is there. And verse 48 is based upon a, a, a passage in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 24 in which Isaiah describes hell as being a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so likely what happened is that in describing hell in that way, a later copyist took that verse, verse 48, and applied it back to the other two references to hell in that previous paragraph in order to, to add the dramatic effect of the words that Jesus spoke and to reiterate the serious nature of what Jesus was saying. What I want you to know is that Jesus emphasizes... And he places a great deal of emphasis upon personal holiness in this verse, in these verses. And, and the links, he says, that which we are to go to ensure, to ensure personal holiness in our life are really astounding. Notice the successive order of what he says. He says, if, if, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your foot is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, pluck it or, or gouge it out. Now, that's, that's drastic and, 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 and harsh language. But he uses those graphic instructions to certainly emphasize just how serious it is that believers fight against sin in their personal lives. Now, unfortunately, there have been those throughout the centuries who have taken Jesus' words literally. And they've engaged in self-mutilation. What I want you to know is Jesus was not saying this here with the idea that someone would take his words literally in this sense. He was not suggesting that someone literally cut their hand off or their foot off or gouged their eye out. He was using hyperbole. He was using overstatement in order to emphasize the necessity of battling against all aspects of sin in a believer's life. After all, self-mutilation was for, forbidden in Judaism. But even, even with that, understand this, self-mutilation would never prevent someone from sinning. I like what John MacArthur has written. He says, a person with one hand or one foot or one eye is no less capable of sinning because no matter what body parts are lost, sin remains in the heart. You and I may be stripped of all of our appendages and you know what? We can still sin because sin begins there. That's where it all starts. However, by mentioning the hand and the foot and the eye, our Lord is obviously describing how sin can affect the totality of our lives. The fact that the hand is talked about means he's talking about things that we do. The fact that he talks about the foot, he's talking about places that we go. He talks about the eye because those are the things that we see. And so... As Hughes points out, our Lord's logic is impeccable and it's compelling because it tells us unequivocally that it is better to clean up your fleeting life here through some healthy self-denial than to go bearing your sins to an unending Gehenna, which is the word that's translated hell there, which is an eternal smoking rubbish heap where the worm eternally gorged themselves and on the refuse of your life. 
When you consider the imagery that Jesus uses in these verses, what you come away with is this. Any sacrifice, any discipline, any self-denial would be worth it compared to experiencing that. There's much that we could say and we could drive down deep into this text. But time compels me just to simply say this. There is the absolute necessity of recognizing that when Jesus presents hell, he presents it as a real place of real torment for the impenitent sinner who will face this real punishment for a real eternity. You know, it's common in our vernacular day to kind of talk flippantly about hell. We'll talk about something that's going on in our lives and we'll say we're going through hell. Or we'll say something along that, that something bad's happened to us and we'll call that hell on earth. I don't want to dismiss or discount anything that's hard that's gone through in your life or anything that's terrorized you or any difficult and horrible experience that you've gone through. But I want you to know when a person finds him or herself in the place that Jesus describes in these verses, in a place that is totally removed from the mercy of God, in a place that will never enjoy any measure of grace from God's hand, well, I want you to know that is the truth definition of hell and brothers and sisters it is a place that is to be avoided at all costs that brings us back to the serious nature of this warning and how we are to apply it to our lives you see Christ's compelling logic demands that you and I ask ourselves some very important questions for example we need to ask ourselves this what are your hands doing what are your hands, what, in other words, what activities are you engaging in that are detrimental to your spiritual well-being? Where are your feet taking you? Are there places that you're going that you ought not be going? Are there things that you're allowing yourself to see? Things that are dishonoring to God and dishonoring to other people. Things that will tempt you beyond your ability to handle. Having asked those questions, we have a second set that needs to come behind them, and that's this. What are you willing to do? What pain are you willing to endure? What battle are you willing to engage in in order to ensure that these things do not trip you up and leave you on the flaming garbage dump for eternity? As the Puritan John Owens has written to Christians, he says, brothers and sisters, you better be killing sin or it will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, the two warnings that Jesus issues to us in these verses must not be overlooked and they must not be downplayed. He is telling us in the clearest and the most graphic language possible that we must not cause other believers to trip up and we must not trip up ourselves through sin. As one has put it very clearly, he says we are responsible to make sure that we do not cause others to stumble and not to cause ourselves to stumble. Christianity is serious business. And he shows us that even again in the third point that I want you to see this morning. The next point on your outline is this. There is the serious business of sacrifice and persecution. Let me read verse 49 again. This is from the New King James. It says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Now, pretty much every other translation that you may have out there, ESV, New American Standard, NIV or is going to say something along these lines. It says, for everyone will be salted with fire. And the variation between those two is once again attributed to a difference in manuscripts. But what really makes these, this verse even more challenging 
is the fact that it's very enigmatic. It's very mysterious. It's kind of hard to get, to, the, to, to get down to exactly what did Jesus mean by that. And I want you to know there have been tons of, of offerings from various scholars who have attempted to try to explain what Jesus says. And I'm not even 100% sure that I know 100% what Jesus was saying here, but I do think that he gives us two clues. He uses two metaphors in that verse that I think help us understand what he's saying. And he's talking about salt and he's talking about fire. And when we talk about salt, it's, it's, Sinclair Ferguson has said this. He, says, he points out that in the Old Testament, according to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, he says the sacrifices made in the temple were seasoned with salt. And therefore, he proposes that Jesus seems to be saying here that when we offer our lives to Christ, we become like those sacrifices. In other words, what he draws a parallel to is he says salt equates to sacrifice. And that makes sense. It makes sense in light of the context. Because what Jesus has been talking about is, is about our, how holy we are to live and the serious nature of that holiness. And if we can truly understand what it means to fight against personal sin in our lives, and if we truly understand what it means to, to protect the witness that we have to the little ones that are around us, we recognize that we too will have to live a life of sacrifice. We will have to live a sacrificial, a self-sacrificial life in order to truly do what Jesus says to do. And I think that's exactly right behind what Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul understood. If you're going to live a holy life, it's going to require sacrifice. It's going to be a life of sacrifice. But what I want you to also know is whenever you live a life of personal sacrifice, you're going to come under, you're going to come under fire from those who are outside. In fact, when, when, when Peter writes about trials and tribulations, he uses the term fire to talk about it. And that's the word that Jesus is using. And Paul also tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So by speaking of salt and by speaking of fire... Jesus is talking about sacrifice and he's talking about persecution. And what he's also, I believe, telling us is that those two things will produce within us the purification that we desire, that we will become more and more like Jesus. We'll be conformed in his image. That's exactly what discipleship actually is. And brothers and sisters, that is serious business. So that's the third point. Now let's go to the fourth thing that Jesus tells us that's serious. And it's in verse 50. And the fourth point on your outline this morning is this, the serious business of being seasoning to those outside and to those inside the body. Notice that in, in verse 50, he stays, Jesus stays with that metaphor of salt, but he changes the metaphor. In, in verse 49, I propose that he's speaking about sacrifice, but in verse 50, he's talking about seasoning. He's talking about salt more in the way that we're accustomed to understanding salt. As you know, salt's got a lot of different values and usages, but I imagine when we go and eat, wherever we eat for lunch today, somewhere on the table is going to be a salt shaker. And salt is then taken and used to season our food. That's, it was used in, in, in Palestine for the exact same reason. But, but salt has another usage, particularly in, 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 in this environment, in Palestine, there would have been an even greater use of salt, and that was to keep meats from, from rotting. 
As you know, meat will, left to itself, will, will begin to putrefy. But if you take that meat and you rub it down with salt, or if you, you take it and you immerse it inside a, a bucket that's filled with, with salt water, you will be able to keep that meat from, from, from rotting and decaying. And so when Jesus says salt is good, that's what he's thinking about. The, the good aspects of what salt does, that it seasons our food, that it keeps our food from rotting. But he's also applying that metaphor to you and to me. As Christians, that's what we're to be. We're to be people who, who are salty. We're to be people that are to season the world in which we live. When people come and interact with us, and when, when the world that is lost out there comes upon us, you know what? They ought to be seasoned by coming in contact with our lives with good, holy, righteous flavor. People ought to leave us different from the way that they found us because we have a seasoning effect upon their lives. Not only that, but by God's grace, we ought to have the ability to keep them from decaying. The Bible tells us is that the world is in a constant state of decay right now because of the fall and because of sin and its continued effects upon the world around us. But as Christians, we live within that world and we should have the effect upon that world of preventing or at least retarding that decay. That's who we are to be. And that is certainly serious business. But notice that Jesus poses a question. He says, what will happen if salt loses its saltiness? Now, if you're a science person out there, you're going, well, wait a minute. Sodium chloride, that is a stable compound, Pastor. It does not break down, and so it really can't lose saltiness. Agreed. But you know what salt can do? It can become so diluted because it's been mixed with so many other things that it really doesn't have any value anymore. John Stott writes this. He says, salt can never lose its saltiness. Nevertheless, it can become contaminated with the impurities that are around it, when it and therefore it becomes useless. What that points us to is just how dangerous and just how easy it is for Christians to lose their saltiness. We can become so assimilated into the world that we live in and contaminated by the impurities of the world that we lose our influence. We we must be careful to recognize that the influence that true Christians have in and on society depends upon us being distinct from the world, not identical to it. If we are indistinguishable, if our goals are the same as the world's goals, if our motivations are the same as theirs, if our values and morals are the same, then, then we render ourselves useless. We will have become contaminated by the impurities around us. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is warning us in this passage not to lose our saltiness. John Stott does say this. He says, Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Rather, our place is to be rubbed into the secular community just as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it from going bad. But then Jesus tells us that our value is not strictly to those who are outside the body, but to those inside the body. Because you notice how he ended it? He ended this, he says, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. It just kind of seems like a throw-in, doesn't it? I mean, like, he, like he, he wanted to say something nice and quaint at the end of his teaching time, and he's kind of wanted to throw that in. But I would suggest to you that there's nothing remotely possible that that would be the case. I like what R.T. France has written. He says, The good salt which should characterize disciples consists in or results in peaceful 
relationships. Now, if you think about that, and if you think about what we've studied in Mark 9 thus far, if you go back, you remember that back in verse 34, the disciples were arguing among themselves who was the greatest. And there was a little bit of fisticuffs going on amongst the, amongst the disciples. And then just a few verses later, they were, they were kind of concerned about these other people, these upstarts, that they didn't know who they were, and they were doing things in Jesus' name. And Jesus said, don't prevent them from doing stuff in my name. If they're not, if they're not against us, they're for us. But there was this, this argumentative nature that was going on. It also applies back to the fact that if you're going to live your life in such a way not to lead little ones astray, you're going to have to do some things that are self-sacrificial. In other words, what Jesus is saying when he says have peace among yourselves, it's not a throwaway sentence that he's just tossing in there. It's actually a summary statement that says when you live your life as a believer, you're going to live it among the body of Christ in such a way that you live peaceful lives. Brothers and sisters, living in peace with one another is serious business. Because as Ferguson states, to love one another truly and humbly from the heart that's what distinguishes the Christian community from the backbiting and the back-scratching communities of the world. Being, being at peace with one another is a reflection of the God-given peace that we have first received from Jesus Christ Himself. And so it's in living with peace for one another. They will know you are Christians by your love. Living at peace with one another is a means by which the outside world is able to determine their lives have truly been changed by the God of all peace. So, as we've seen in this passage, Jesus has made some very critical and crucial and radical and serious statements that characterize what it means to be a Christian and what it truly means to be a follower of Christ. And it leads me to my sermon in a sentence. And I've truly tried to summarize all that I've said this morning in a big old sentence. And I've had help with it, so I'm hoping it's right. Here's what I've got for you. The serious business of being a Christian is expressed in these ways. Through Jesus' warning against causing others or ourselves to go astray. Through his prediction of persecution, and I would even add to that through his prediction of sacrifice and persecution. And through his command to have a positive impact upon the world and upon each other. As best as I can, I believe that fully summarizes what Jesus says. But I want you to know the summary is not the point. It's what it means. It's how it, it's how it applies. Because just like those disciples when Jesus said that, you and I have to then look at our own lives and go, wow, what does that mean for me? And I put together a list of questions that I think we ought to ask ourselves, and you may be able to come up with a whole bunch more. But I would offer these to you, particularly as we come to a close this morning. As we assess how these words apply, I believe here's some heart-searching questions that we ought to ask. Number one, am I setting a positive example and leading others to a closer walk with Christ? Secondly, am I treating sin casually in my life? Are there things that I am unwilling to give up in order to live a more holy life? Do I avoid self-sacrifice? Does the fear of persecution cause me to adopt the attitudes and the practices of the world around me? Am I living the kind of life 
which will make a real impact upon my society. And finally, am I living in such a way as to preserve loving and peaceful relationships with my fellow Christians? That's a start. And you may be saying, wow, for the first sermon of 2018, you really sit there, well, it's, it's the Word of God, and we picked up right where we left off at the end of 17, so don't blame me. But in God's providence, in God's providence, what better questions could we ask ourselves as believers as we begin to make our steps and to walk through this year? What better way can we begin our lives as true followers of Christ than examining ourselves and allowing the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Spirit to work through them to analyze our lives and to cause us to question how should we now live? Friends, I want you to know these are serious questions that demand serious answers because Christianity is serious business. And this is the Word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.